If that sounds like an amalgamation premise, it is. Seen it once, don't remember when. Think it's time to watch it again. Follow, subscribe, stay up to date. Episodes drop the last Friday. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. It's a man, it's a man, forgot that. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Forgot That podcast, the place to recollect and reminisce. I'm your host, Matt Sarosky, filmmaker, film fan. Each episode, I'm going to rewatch and review a movie or TV pilot that I've seen before but don't quite remember. It could be a blockbuster, critic's choice, or cult classic. To join in on the conversation, follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattWatchThat on social. Before we start, Joyce Randolph died on January 13th, 2024 at the age of 99. What a run. She was best known as Trixie, the wife of Ed Norton, and upstairs neighbors to the Cramdens on The Honeymooners. Now, the four main cast members are reunited in the afterlife. It's incredible to think that a show which only lasted one season of 39 episodes has had such a cultural impact. It started as a sketch on Variety series Cavalcade of Stars, which was hosted by Jackie Gleason, and continued on his own series, The Jackie Gleason Show. It was so popular that it was spun off into its own series, The Honeymooners, Art Carney reprised his role as Ed Norton. Audrey Meadows replaced original sketch actresses, Pert Kelton and Ginger Jones, who were blacklisted. Elaine Stritch was replaced by Joyce Randolph. Unlike comedies of the time, it portrayed a blue-collar family just trying to get by. Ralph was a bus driver, and the Cramdens lived in a two-room apartment. If it was listed on a real estate website, they'd call it cozy. Ed Norton was a sewer worker. Many episodes revolved around get-rich-quick schemes undertaken by Ralph and Norton. One of the most famous included Ralph making an appearance on a quiz show, The $99,000 Answer. It's definitely in my top five. After it left the air, there were a couple of revivals with various actors playing the roles of Alice and Trixie. The infamous instrumental theme song was composed by Gleason and performed by an orchestra conducted by Ray Block bandleader of The Ed Sullivan Show. I've said it before, my favorite New Year's tradition is watching The Honeymooners on WPIX in New York. So to Jackie, Art, Audrey, and Joyce, you're the greatest. On to the main attraction. Each review will end with a ranking out of five stars. One star is Skip It, two stars Watch at Your Own Risk, three stars Standard Fair, four stars Worth Checking Out, and five stars Must See. Now, if I give a title five stars, it doesn't mean I'm comparing it to Casablanca, Jaws, or Seinfeld. I rank titles based on other movies or TV series in that genre and at that time period. In this episode of the podcast, I'll be reviewing Zoolander from 2001. It was directed by Ben Stiller, who helmed dramedy romance, reality bites, dark comedy, The Cable Guy, and action parody, Tropic Thunder. 
He won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing in a Variety or Music Program for The Ben Stiller Show. The screenplay was written by the director, Drake Sather and John Hamburg. The male model character first appeared in two shorts that aired during the VH1 Fashion Awards in 1996 and 1997, before transferring to the big screen. It stars Ben Stiller as dim-witted catwalker Derek Zoolander, Born and raised in New York City to comedy pair Jerry Stiller and Anne Mira, he had a show business upbringing and appeared on screen at age nine in Kate McShane, a short-lived series starring his mother. He was cast in the Broadway production of The House of the Blue Leaves with John Mahoney. He started to create shorts and mockumentaries, which would lead to being hired by Saturday Night Live. He would leave after only a couple of episodes for his self-titled series on MTV. He would go on to direct and star in Reality Bites, which would lead to roles in Happy Gilmore, The Cable Guy, and his comedic breakthrough, There's Something About Mary. Owen Wilson portrays rival and rising star Hansel McDonald. He went to the University of Texas at Austin, where he was roommates with future director and frequent collaborator Wes Anderson. He made his acting debut in the short Bottle Rocket, which would be turned into a feature in 1996. He had supporting parts in The Cable Guy, Anaconda, Armageddon, and Permanent Midnight. His breakthrough would be in Shanghai Noon with Jackie Chan. He would go on to write and star in The Royal Tenenbaums, which was nominated for Best Writing, screenplay written directly for the Screen Academy Award, with Wes Anderson. The friendship between the two leads started after Stiller saw Bottle Rocket and reached out to compliment Wilson on the movie. They've appeared in 14 films together, starting with 1996's The Cable Guy. This is what I remember. Blue Steel, probably the most infamous face posture. The walk-off, a chance for Ben Stiller and Owen Wilson to strike a pose. And Magatu's hair, one of the most distinct looks in Will Ferrell's career. Now I'm heading off to watch the movie. This is what I forgot. The newly elected Prime Minister of Malaysia ran on a platform of raising the minimum wage and ending child labor, giving hope to the community of the impoverished nation. The leaders of the fashion world are unhappy with his election, as they've taken advantage of the cheap sweatshop workers, and these new policies will increase their manufacturing costs. They fear other countries will follow suit, and their industry will go bankrupt within a year. They task fashion designer Jacobin Mugatu with taking the leader out when the Prime Minister visits New York for Fashion Week in 14 days. But he believes it's not enough time to recruit and train an operative. He needs to find a beautiful, self-absorbed simpleton for the job. Meanwhile, Derek Zoolander is a top male model and fashion icon, known for his signature look, Blue Steel. At the VH1 Fashion Awards, he's up for Male Model of the Year, which he's won three years in a row. But he has stiff competition in Hansel McDonald, a brash rookie who's gotten the most covers in his first year of modeling. After losing out to Hansel and the release of an unflattering article in Time magazine, Derek's world shatters and he questions his life choices. But Mugatu makes him an offer to return to the world of modeling while brainwashing him to assassinate the Prime Minister. Here's a quote without context. 
I've got a prostate the size of a honeydew and a head full of bad memories. Zoolander is a stupid movie, in the best sense of the word. I found myself with a smile on my face throughout. In this type of film, the more outlandish the concept, the funnier it becomes. Yes, on the surface, it's about male models. But there's an all-the-president's-men type subplot, where reporter Matilda Jeffries investigates into Magatu and eventually uncovers his dastardly plans. There are a couple of scenes like the walk-off that felt like padding the runtime. It didn't elicit enough laughs to justify being in the movie, but without those types of scenes, I'm not sure the film would have been feature-length. There's part of me that wants to vehemently dislike this movie for inspiring a generation of social media influencers to take pictures with the blue steel pose or duck lips. There are a lot of celebrity cameos in this movie, from Donald Trump, Paris Hilton, Winona Ryder, to Fabio, Billy Zane, and David Bowie. Now for a little trivial trivia. It was a family affair on set. The movie features Ben Stiller's wife, Christine Taylor, his parents, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, his sister, Amy Stiller, and brother-in-law, Mitch Winston. Also, Owen Wilson's brother, Andrew Wilson, has a small role as Hansel's corner guy. Zoolander was produced by Scott Rudin, Ben Stiller, and Stuart Kornfeld. It was filmed in and around New York City, Los Angeles, and New Jersey. The cinematography was captured by Barry Peterson, whose filmography includes remake 21 Jump Street, neighborhood comedy The Watch, reboot Vacation, and buddy comedy Central Intelligence. It was edited by Greg Hayden, who worked on family comedy Meet the Parents, spy satire Austin Powers and Goldmember, rom-com Bridget Jones, The Edge of Reason, and dramedy The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. The score was composed by David Arnold, who wrote the music for sci-fi adventure Stargate, Bond films Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day, Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and crime thriller Shaft. The soundtrack featured songs by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, The Crystal Method, Orgy, Loverboy, and The Wallflowers. The runtime is 1 hour 30 minutes. It had a budget of $28 million and grossed $60 million at the box office. A sequel was released in 2016 to less than stellar reviews. An animated television movie, Zoolander Supermodel, was released in the United Kingdom in 2016 and the United States in 2020. On the Ski Index, I give it 3.5 out of 5 stars. It's a step below Anchorman and Dodgeball. I probably like a couple of Sandler movies over it, but it's decent for another watch if it's on TV. If you've seen Zoolander and have opinions on the movie, let me know what you think using the hashtag MattForgotThat. Moving right along, each episode, I'm going to post throwback clips that I think people should watch. It could be movie trailers, music videos, interviews, or something completely random. Search for my YouTube page and there'll be a playlist called Matt Forgot That Playback. Due to only murders in the building, Steve Martin and Martin Short are having a career resurgence, and rightfully so. I've been a fan of both of these men for a long time. They're genuine friends, and even when they're insulting each other, you know it's from a place of adoration. I'm going to talk about Steve Martin in a future episode, but I wanted to focus on Martin Short. While he's known for the characters Ed Grimley, which originated at Second City in Toronto and reprised on shows SCTV and Saturday Night Live, Nathan Thurm, unscrupulous attorney from SNL, and Frank Engelhofer, 
wedding planner from the Father of the Bride movies. My personal favorite was Jiminy Glick. The character started on the short-lived syndicated talk show, The Martin Short Show, in 1999. He was portrayed as a famous television interviewer who was utterly clueless of the celebrities he was conversing with and would often ask cringy, off-putting questions. The character proved popular enough to warrant his own talk show on Comedy Central. Primetime Glick aired for three seasons, 30 episodes from 2001 to 2003. He would take the leap onto the big screen with the 2004 film, Jiminy Glick and Lala Wood, where he plays an entertainment reporter who goes to the Toronto Film Festival and gets involved in a murder mystery. It stars Martin Short, Jan Hooks, Linda Cardinelli, Janine Garofalo, and Elizabeth Perkins, with Whoopi Goldberg, Jake Gyllenhaal, Kevin Klein, Steve Martin, and Sharon Stone playing themselves. The character continued in the Broadway show, Martin Short, Fame Becomes Me. The interviews were partially improvised, and Martin, as Jiminy, brilliantly reacts to the celebrity answers that enhances the funny. It's not everyone's cup of tea, I get it, but when someone can make other comedians like Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David, Ricky Gervais, Mel Brooks, and Steve Martin laugh, it shows how truly brilliant Martin Short is. I've selected a couple of clips featuring the character Jiminy Glick and Martin Short. They're all available in the Matt Forgot That playback playlist on YouTube. Check it out. Now it's time for the recommendation. Yes, that's the word recommendation with Matt in the middle. I'm going to end each podcast with my own recommendation of a nostalgic movie or TV series. Today I'm talking about Over the Top. It tells the story of Lincoln Hawk, a long-haul truck driver who has been an absentee father of his young son, Michael. But when his ex-wife, Christina, is in the hospital with a debilitating disease, he tries to repair his relationship with his son by taking him on a road trip from Colorado to California. And along the way, they take breaks at truck stops where Lincoln participates in arm wrestling competitions. If that sounds like an amalgamation premise, it is. The movie is in a genre all by itself. Father-son-truck-driving-arm-wrestling drama. It was directed by Menahem Golan, who helmed bizarre musical The Apple, martial arts flick Enter the Ninja, and action drama The Delta Force. He and his cousin Yoram Globus were co-owners of the Canon Group, best known for B-action movies starring Chuck Norris, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Charles Bronson, and Michael Dudikoff. They reigned over the most successful period in the company's history, and at one point, they held the rights to Death Wish, Masters of the Universe, Superman, Captain America, and Spider-Man. The screenplay was co-written by Sterling Siliphant and Sylvester Stallone, based on a story by Gary Conway and David Engelbach. It stars the aforementioned Sylvester Stallone, David Mendenhall, and Robert Loja. It also features Suzanne Blakely, Rick Zumwalt, Chris McCarty, Jimmy Keegan, and wrestlers Terry Funk and Scott Norton. The score was composed by Giorgio Moroder, who wrote the music for Midnight Express, American Gigolo, Flashdance, and The NeverEnding Story. The soundtrack features the songs Winner Takes It All by Sammy Hagar, I Will Be Strong by Eddie Money, and It Wouldn't Be an 80s Soundtrack Without Kenny Loggins, who performs Meet Me Halfway. 
It's probably one of his lesser known songs, but compared to massive hits, I'm Alright from Caddyshack, Footloose from, well, Footloose, and Danger Zone from Top Gun, everything else is going to look small. I don't know how it happened, but I rediscovered this movie, and it's really pretty good. It came at a very interesting point in Sylvester Stallone's career, because at that time he was known for very violent movies, with Rambo, Cobra, you name it. So this one showed a different side, a softer side of Sly. Now, judging by the concept, it totally shouldn't work as a movie, but for some reason, it just does. And even though it's a bit far-fetched, it does remind me of a more recent movie, Real Steel with Hugh Jackman. Very similar concept. And not surprisingly, I like them both. There are moments that give you the feels, and others that give you the cringe. So I think it's worth the watch. Let me know what you think. Hit me up on social media using the hashtag MattForgotThat, and let me know your thoughts on the film. That's all for this edition of Matt Forgot That. Thanks for listening to me reminisce. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, at Matt Sarosky. You can subscribe to my YouTube page where I'll post videos and clips from the show. If you have any opinions on what I've reviewed or want to share your own trip down memory lane, use the hashtag MattForgotThat on social. Head over to MattSarosky.com for all the latest news and updates, and come back next time for the rewatch and review. They reigned over the most successful period in the company's history, and at one point, they held the rights to Death Wash. Death Wash. <laughs> I want to see that movie. Due to only in the murders in the bill. What did I just say? But when his ex-wife, Christina, is in the hospital with a dip With a dub 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 But when someone can make other comedians like Jerry Seinfeld, Darry- Darry David. And Magatu's hair. One of the most distinct looks in Wilson Felt. Wilson Phillips. <laughs>